If you're just now joining us for the first time or for the first time in a while, get ready. We've been in the book of Mark, in the gospel according to Mark, for several months, but this passage this morning, this is the hinge point of the whole gospel. This is the crux, this is the high point, this is where everything comes to a head. This is what everything has been leading up to, and this is where everything proceeds down from, from this point. This is one of the most significant passages in all of the gospel narratives of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is the kind of passage where we don't need any further introduction. We would do well to just read it. So with that, beginning in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we wish to see Jesus this morning, to see him clearly with eyes unveiled, 
unobstructed to see him as he is. Lord, would you, would you stun us today with what is truly and genuinely stunning? I pray that we wouldn't approach this passage with presumption, with, with assuming that we know what's going on here, with assuming that we know what's revealed here. Would you amaze us, convict us, draw us to yourself, but show us who Jesus is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the first half of Mark, Mark is 16 chapters, the first half is extremely fast-paced, and we've become really uh, attuned to that, right? We, we go from passage to passage, and it goes, immediately they went there, and immediately they did this, and immediately they went there. But all of a sudden here, it slows down. Up until now, the focus has been really broad, but from here, these next eight chapters, they focus in. Up until now, Jesus has been here and there and everywhere, traveling from place to place, but from this point on, he's going in a straight line from Galilee to Jerusalem and eventually to Calvary. From up until this point, that there's been a massive spread of time. From this point, it's less than a week. Everything slows down. And the first half, as, we have, as we've seen, is, is concerned with answering the question, who is Jesus? The, the most important question that anybody could ever ask, the most, question for, the most important question for all of life. And Jesus has answered that question powerfully through, through teachings and through miracles, but, but indirectly. Yet what we saw last week in the first part of chapter 8 is that everybody is still blind. Everybody is still blind to who Jesus is. But today, life's most important question, your most important question in every moment of life, is as directly and clearly answered as it possibly could be. It's revealed today. Our eyes are opened a little bit, and then next week with the transfiguration, our eyes are opened even further, and then our eyes will continue to be opened as, as we see the fullness of the revelation of the passion of Jesus Christ and everything that ensues. But not only the question, who is Jesus, will be answered today, but, but another nearly as important question is answered immediately after that question. And that question is what does it mean to follow Jesus? And the answers to both of these questions are stunning. They are stunning, especially to the immediate hearers that Jesus was speaking to. And we're going to try to get into their world a little bit this morning, to get away from our, 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 modern, our modern assumptions and presuppositions and get into their world. The answers are stunning. They're paradigm shifting. They're literally life changing, not just to his disciples, whom he was talking to, but to us. Life changing. And I promise you, this is no exaggeration because as these two questions are answered, we begin to see. Our eyes begin 
to open. Our blindness slowly fades. Suddenly, light and colors and shapes appear in the foreground of our vision. But what is stunning is that the shape that is most immediately recognizable as our, as our sight goes from darkness to blurry recognition, what we recognize in hearing the answer to these questions is the shape of the cross. See, Jesus opens the eyes of the blind to see the shape of the cross. He opens the eyes of the blind to see the shape of the cross. And the cross, we discover, is central both to who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciple. If we're looking for the drama, as as R.C. Sproul would often say, look for the drama in the passage. If we're looking for the drama, once again, we come to a passage that is packed with drama from, from every sentence to the next sentence, packed with drama. And listen, in fact, this passage amplifies all of the drama yet to come. Gethsemane, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the actual crucifixion of Jesus, the the resurrection of Jesus. These are are the most dramatic events in all of history, but they're amplified by what we learn today. So, there are two questions in this passage. First, who do you say Jesus is? Secondly, what do you say following Jesus is? means. Those are effectively our two points for the rest of this sermon today, but, but I want you to, to notice these are questions that aren't asked theoretically. These are questions directed at you. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you say it means to follow Jesus? And before we jump into the first point, I want you to pay attention to something as well. You cannot answer the second question correctly without answering the first question correctly. And and it may seem obvious to you, but I want you to lean in this morning. Jesus gives a specific reason why question number one informs question number two, and it has everything to do with the shape of the cross. And And it may, again, no exaggeration, it may just it may just change the rest of your life. So with that introduction, hopefully, well, this is God's word. God's word, word will move forward in power. But as we dive in, let's have big expectations for what we encounter here. First point, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus is walking toward Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, 13 of them, Jesus and his 12 disciples, and followed close behind is the same crowd that hasn't left him alone for years. They're following him from town to town. They're walking out in front, and you can imagine him 
pointing back at the crowd and going, hey guys, who, who do they say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Verse 27. And they all start chiming in together. And maybe it was Philip who, who said, well, some say that you're, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Because at this point, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. But some are saying, well, Jesus is John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And maybe Bartholomew chimes in and he says, well, actually some people are, are saying that you're Elijah reincarnate. And then maybe, maybe Andrew says, yeah, uh, true, but mo- most people are, are just saying you're, you're a new prophet. You're, you're just uh, another prophet in the long line of prophets. The point is that none of the outside world had yet guessed the true nature of Jesus as Messiah. They're still blind. Despite everything that has happened, despite despite him having walked on water, multiplied a few fish and loaves into thousands, despite raising the dead, literally healing hundreds of people, nobody had yet guessed who he really was. And you can only imagine that Jesus at this point stopped on the path and he paused and he looks at each of them directly in the eyes. A moment of pregnant silence and he says, who do you say that I am? Note how the question is posed. Who do you say that I am? Commentator Alan Cole helpfully remarks that here is a personal question that transfers theology from an armchair discussion to an uncomfortable dialogue between God and us. Who do you say Jesus is? Through his divinely inspired word, Jesus is looking at you and saying, who do you say that I am? He's not asking, what have you read about me? He's not saying, what what things do you know about me? He's not saying, if I live today, what kind of things would I do? Which is one of the the favorite hobbies of people, people who don't read the Bible often but say, I think Jesus would do this. I think he would say this. No, 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 no. Who do you say that he is? And the answer that Peter gives is one that Matthew, in his gospel, mentions is an answer that's only possible by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter's blindness is finally peeled back, but only because God is healing his blindness. And he looks at Jesus and he says, You're the Christ. The Christ. This is the first correct human confession of who Jesus is. In, in Mark 1 1, Mark the author identifies who Jesus is. In, in Mark 1, a demon identifies who Jesus is. The demons know who he is, but no human had yet, up until this point in Mark, correctly identified who Jesus is. And here's Peter saying, You are the Christ. Listen, Christ, as we well know, isn't Jesus' last name. 
It's a title. It means literally the anointed one, God's anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. The one that God had promised for thousands of years to his people. It's the promised king who would come and save God's people from their enemies. There weren't many messiahs. There's one. And he hadn't come yet. And Peter's saying, Jesus, who do I say that you are? You are him. You are the one. This is stunning. Stunning what Peter's saying. But you don't yet understand how stunning his confession is. Because one of the primary Old Testament passages that informed the messianic hopes of the Jews was Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Don't turn back there. Uh, It might take you a a minute to find Daniel chapter 7, but let me read verses 13 and 14 for you. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Write those verses down. Look, maybe read Daniel 7 this week. Just about every Jew would have known this passage. And when they thought of the Messiah, the Christ, they would have conjured up this kind of picture in their minds. Daniel 7, 13 says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came from the ancient of days, who is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, who's come in the clouds, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. His dominion, his rule, is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you are that one. And listen, listen, nobody came on the clouds in the Old Testament except for God. There is nobody who is eternal, much less nobody who could reign over an eternal kingdom like Daniel describes, except for God. This is, this is a prophecy stating that God would come from heaven and reign as king, not only over Israel, but even over their, their enemies, even over their Roman oppressors. And all peoples of the world forever. And Peter says, who do I say that you are, Jesus? You're him. What a stunning confession. But listen, as stunning as this is, what comes next is even more stunning. Verse 30, verse 30, he he tells them to tell no one. Why? Because not even his disciples, much less the broader public, were ready for verse 31. Verse 31, look, look down at the text with me. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, notice that title, the Son of Man, it would come to be Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's his favorite title that he would use for himself. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. 
many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is the first of three projections of Jesus' own suffering and death. But don't miss this. The Son of Man. The Son of Man of Daniel 7 must suffer. What? What? Must, must suffer, not at the hands of the Romans, but, but at the hands of the religious establishment, of the people that God had sent him to save. And not just suffer, but to be killed. What? This is the holy grounds. This is holy ground, your friends. What, what is Jesus referring to? We know he's referring to the cross. And the word suffering connected with Jesus in the New Testament comes to be synonymous with his crucifixion. The disciples' eyes, they're, they're opened just enough to see, to see the glorious Messiah, yet they are stunned and dismayed to see looming behind him the shape of a cross. Listen, if, if you are a Christian who loves Jesus, don't think that you'd respond any differently than Peter did. You would respond just like he did. You've come to love him. You've come to believe and stake your whole life on him. And to believe that he is God come to earth to reign over your life and your eternity. And then he turns around and he says, but I'm going to suffer and be killed. You would do just what Peter did. And Peter takes him aside. He grabs him by the shoulder gently and takes him aside from the rest of the disciples. And you can just imagine putting his hands on both of his shoulders, looking at Jesus' eyes and saying, no, no. I will not let that happen to you. So stunned are Peter and the disciples that they, they seem to completely ignore or just not even hear the end of verse 31 that Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to rise again. They, they do not comprehend, well, they don't comprehend any of this. They're just, they're, their world is, is swirling. But they don't comprehend that he's going to rise again. Even when he did rise again, they still didn't get it. All they could hear was the suffering. And they couldn't bear the thought of it. And, G and Peter rebukes Jesus and he says, no. No, you won't. Don't talk like that. We won't let it happen to you. And Jesus looks back at the disciples and then back at Peter and he responds, verse 33. He says, get behind me, Satan. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why would Jesus rebuke Peter so sternly? 
Certainly, Peter was just, just misinformed. I mean, he, he had nothing but, but devotion to Jesus, right? He's, he's, he just misunderstands. The reason Jesus so sternly rebukes Peter is to show that his coming suffering was not the plan of Satan. In fact, in fact, it would be Satan who would want to prevent Jesus from the coming suffering. In fact, in his temptation in the wilderness, Satan did try to tempt him. Listen, listen, this whole kingdom can be yours without suffering. Just, just follow me. So, so when Peter comes and says, hey, listen, listen, no, you're not going to suffer. It's the same claim that Satan would make. Jesus makes clear. Jesus makes clear. For him to suffer, that's not the plan of Satan. The plan of Satan would be completely opposite. It was not the conquering of the Son of Man at the hands of his enemies. His suffering is not the conquering of the Son of Man. His suffering is was not contrary to the plan of God. It was the plan. And it was crucial that we and the disciples understand this. The fundamental reason for Jesus' life was not the living of his life, but the losing of his life. That is what Jesus came to do. That's why we often say Jesus was not merely a good example because his example is not what saves us. It was suffering and the being killed on the cross, taking our place, bearing our sin in himself. He must suffer. Listen, hear hear his love for you in that statement. He must suffer. There was no other way for your sin to be atoned for other than the suffering of the Son of God on your behalf. Jesus would even ask the Father in Gethsemane, in in a moment of weakness, Father, is there any other way? And if there's not, your will be done. And what was he met with? Silence. There was no other way. If there was, God the Father would have provided it. There was one way, and God the Father did provide it, and it was the life and suffering and death of his Son on behalf of sinners that he had come to save. And Jesus refused to allow his own comfort or Peter, or Satan himself to stop him from suffering for you. Oh gosh, we could talk about application till the cows come home today. But the fundamental application, be stunned. Step back in amazement at Jesus' resolve here to suffer for you despite knowing everything that it entails. Jesus resolved to be the Messiah that didn't just come 
with pomp and circumstance to come and reign and usher in his kingdom at the expense of whoever had sinned and rejected God. He didn't need to save anybody, but he chose to. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? He is God's Messiah. Sent to suffer, to be killed, and to rise again for those who follow him. But, what does it mean to follow him? And and Jesus, Jesus turns on a dime and he's thinking the same thing that we are right now. Okay, this is the Jesus we follow, but what, what, what does it mean to follow him? And that's the second question. What do you say following Jesus means? When we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, we learned one thing for certain about the Midwest, and that's that it's way different than California <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, apparently, one, one, one way is that apparently everybody's a Christian. I, I remember uh, we sat down for, for lunch, uh, a couple of my seminary classmates and I, we sat down for lunch and uh, asked the waitress if we, could, if we could pray for her. And she said, no, that's fine, I'm already a Christian. I said, okay. Uh, just about every time that somebody would find out that uh, we were there for seminary, I can't, I can't tell you how many times somebody said, oh, really, my daddy was a preacher. Just about everybody you asked, if they're a Christian, they say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Everybody. But being a Christian has little to do with answering yes to the question, are you a Christian? Anybody can say that. You want to find out if someone's a Christian, you ask, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And, and if your answer isn't at least what we just heard, then you're not a Christian. You're following some other idea or, or construction of Jesus. Even, listen, even the title Christian, which was first mockingly given to followers of Christ at Antioch in Acts 11, means Christ people. People of Christ. So to say I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm a person of Christ. And if that Christ that you are a person of does not match the true identity of Christ, well, maybe you're not a Christian. But what does it mean to be a person of Christ? What does it mean to be Christ people? Jesus follows the revelation of the suffering Messiah immediately with a description of what it means to follow the suffering Messiah. And once again, it is stunning. Verse 34. He then turns his his attention to the crowd. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone, if any one of you, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Christian 
discipleship takes the form of the cross. Christian discipleship takes the form of the cross. Here we see why it was so essential that Peter should grasp the conditions for the Messiahship of Jesus. Why it was so important that that Peter understood how essential it was that the Messiah must suffer because otherwise Peter and the disciples and us, we could not grasp the conditions for discipleship for ourselves. Verse 34 is comprised of three commands. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, followed by four explanations of the command in verses 35, 36, 37, and 38. A disciple of Jesus must deny himself or herself, take up his cross or her cross, and follow Jesus. And all four of the explanations in the last four verses are closely related. They use the language of of business and investment. Profit, save, gain, forfeit, return. And the point in these four explanations is that the person who invests to gain even the whole world, if you gain all the money in the world, all all the property in the world, all the possessions in the world, That person gains even the whole world but forfeits his soul. That person is a fool. That person is a fool. Following Christ involves not trying to save one's own life. Because if you try to do that, you'll lose it while trying. But if you willingly Lose your life for Christ's sake. There you find the life you were looking for in the first place. Not only the life that you were looking for in the first place, but a life grander and greater than you could have ever imagined in the first place. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Listen, Jesus is not, he's not calling anyone who follows him to, to deny something to ourselves. The, the application of this, this instruction here isn't self-discipline. It's not the denial of some things to ourselves. This is not the inauguration of Lent right here, okay? He's not calling disciples to deny themselves something, but to deny some one yourself and to take up your cross listen we have to understand that cross meant only one thing in that day we have to transport ourselves into this situation because when they heard the word cross they did not think of decorative trinkets on bracelets they didn't think of wall art they didn't think of stained glass windows only one image came to mind a symbol of roman occupation cross was an instrument used by romans 
to execute. The most debased criminals within their society and, and those conquered nations that they conquered. It was one thing and one thing only. It was an instrument of execution. So this is not an inspirational saying, take up your cross daily. No. This is akin to, and, and it's, hard to find, it's hard to find a parallel. This is akin to saying, take up your noose. This is an instrument of execution. And that's all they heard in this. To, to willingly bear your cross is to willingly welcome your death. It's, it's not to, to willingly endure difficult things. That, that, that's why it's just, it's, not just, it's just not appropriate to speak of a person or a difficult circumstance as my cross to bear. Well, if you say my cross to bear, you're talking about something way different. And this is confirmed by the language of losing your life. I mean, what Jesus is saying here, again, it's stunning. How do I follow Jesus? Not just accept hard things. Lose your life. How do you keep your life? Lose your life. How do you keep your soul and your eternity and your happiness? Lose your life. Can you imagine the response of those who were listening that day? I don't know how this is landing on your ears, but if you take a moment and consider this, th this, is, this is literally life changing. But, but what, did, what does it practically mean to, to lose your life for Christ, to deny yourself and to take up your cross? What does cross-shaped discipleship look like? Well, cross-shaped discipleship looks like, it looks like putting God rather than self at the center of every decision you make. If you're taking notes, write that down. Cross-shaped cross discipleship looks like putting God rather than self at the center of every decision you make. And first and foremost, it's the decision to admit that the self that I used to see as so wonderful and so important and so critical and so indispensable and so glorious and so worth my attention and so worth the attention of others is a self that's full of sin. And not just a self that's full of sin, but sin that needed to be carried by and paid for by Jesus on the cross. The self that we are called to deny is the self that was crucified with Christ if we have placed our faith in Him. Galatians 2.20 says that I have been crucified with Christ. The reason we're called to deny ourselves is because that self was crucified with Christ. So our, our, our cross, listen, to be very clear, our cross that we carry is, is not a cross that atones in itself. 
Our cross is taken up in Christ's cross. Our cross is ultimately carried by Jesus himself. So we're not, when he says take up your cross, he's not saying pay for your own sins. No, 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 no. The image of what he's saying is die to yourself. Lose your life. Accept that your sinful self that could not save itself has been crucified with me on the cross and no longer lives. It is no longer worth giving attention. So denying self, it's losing any chance at life through self. It's giving up any chance at, at ultimate things through self. And instead, finding life by faith in Christ. This is what Jesus is talking about above all else by losing your life. But as you progress in the Christian life, you lose your life for the glory of Christ by giving of your time and your money for, for your neighbors and your friends and your brothers and sisters. You, you deny your own self-interest and live for the glory of Christ through the resources and the time that he's given to you. You, you lose your life for the sake of the salvation of your, of your neighbors or the neighbors of our church by living near them rather than, rather than where is comfortable. It's one, one way to to lose your life for the sake of Christ. You, you lose your life when, when you have been hurt or offended by somebody and you choose to forgive them. Because, because choosing to act in my own self-interest says, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to make sure that I have justice for myself. When I lose my life, I deny myself and live for the glory of Jesus who forgave me, I'm able to then forgive. Throughout your Christian life, you lose your life for the sake of the purity of God's reputation by openly and confidently believing what the Bible says rather than towing the party line of whatever is culturally acceptable. Oh, sometimes that, that does feel like I'm, I'm losing my life, my, my reputation in this world. I'm becoming an outcast. I'm, I'm meaningless in the grand scope of things. Well, good news. Jesus calls you. Lose your life. Lose your, lose your life, husbands, by sacrificially loving your wife rather than being in a marriage for what you can get from your wife. By sacrificially loving your wife. Lose your life, wives, by serving and supporting your husband rather than ensuring that your own interests are met at every point in the day. Lose your life in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships. Lose your life, middle schoolers and high schoolers and, and young people in the, the, the church by blazing a different trail than the cool and popular trails your friends and classmates and teammates are blazing. Lose your life. All of these are examples of denying self 
but instead choosing what is glorifying to God. That's what Jesus means. This is, this is cross-shaped discipleship. But here's the wonder of it. Here's the wonder of it. When all is said and done at the end of Mark, what has the suffering and crucified Messiah found at the end of his suffering? He's found resurrection life, hasn't he? And he's found the reward of all who would believe in him and life eternal with them. He's found the, the defeat of sin and Satan and anything that would dog his existence or our existence. What will you find by denying yourself, by losing your life? You will find resurrection life with the one who purchased your life for you. Galatians 2.20 does not just say, I have been crucified with Christ. It goes on. Galatians 2.20 in full says, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The life I now live. To deny yourself is to say, I no longer live for my own self-interest and I don't have to. I don't have to. Because Jesus, the Son of Man, lived and died for every interest of mine that mattered. I don't have to live for my own self-interest. I can trust in him. That, that me that lived for my own self-interest, it died. He died. She died. But the me that was raised with Christ through his resurrection is a me that lives for the glory of Christ. And any time that old me tries to raise up from the grave, I just shove it right back down again. That is cross-shaped discipleship. Friends, have your eyes been opened? Oh gosh, I hope so. I, this, is, this is God's perfect word given through an imperfect preacher. My prayer is that the Lord would have opened your eyes do you see clearly? Not yet perfectly. None of us will see perfectly. But is the blurriness starting to fade away? Maybe there's some blurriness that has sort of re-entered your eyes. My prayer is that, that the blurriness starts to fade away again. To see who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. The cross shapes the Christian life. The cross shapes the remainder of the book of Mark. The cross shaped the early church and it has shaped this local church up until this very day. When we look at life in total through Jesus' eyes, we see the shape of the cross. Author Michael Reeves says that as, as much as darkness fell when Jesus died, from the cross... A light shines on every other event and person in history. Every doctrine and every passage of Scripture. 
cross shapes our lives. So who do you say that Jesus is? What do you say it means to follow Jesus? If you agree that he is the Messiah sent to suffer for your sins and the only way your sins could be atoned for, if you agree that following him means living a cross-shaped life, what might it look like for you today? Today, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. Answer that question. Talk about it over lunch. Pray about it. Spend time in your, in your devotions this week. Don't, don't just let this be the kind of sermon that just passes by, though maybe there are some that I preach that should. Think about this. Ask the Lord to help you, to give you the strength and the courage to live a cross-shaped life. Live like that and find life and find your soul. Live like that and find the one you were made for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, many words have been said. I ask that your spirit would would move among us, would do your work. Help us, help us, Father, to, to respond correctly. Continue to open our eyes, stun us, stun us every day with the wonder of the gospel. Give us strength and courage and faith and joy as we live cross-shaped lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.